Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Good morning. It is, I'm Corby Amos, by the way. It's a privilege and an honor to get to preach at First Baptist Church this morning. I'm so excited about that. But I have to tell you, I had a dream about this sermon. And uh, I showed up to preach. I had everything prepared. I was ready to roll. I was excited. Things seemed to be going well with the sermon. I looked out. Nobody was falling asleep, nodding off. No one left. Right? And, uh, but I did notice that a few folks were looking at me funny, which is not uncommon. That happens. But this time it, was, it looked a little different. And so I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I'm looking around. And I look down. And I, I'm expecting to be in my suit. But, in fact, I was in my pajamas. So we're already ahead of the curve this morning. We're doing good. Now, I'm hoping that the sermon today is going to bring comfort to many of us. I know that I have, my family has, and many of you have, have lost Christian loved ones this year or who have loved ones that are struggling with illness. And I hope that this sermon today will bring comfort to you as we go through this. The sermon today is about resurrection. That is my favorite subject in the world. I love it. When we went through John 20 in my Sunday school class a couple of years ago, we spent eight weeks on resurrection. That's how packed full of gold it is. Eight weeks. It was awesome. I remember, uh, just a quick story. Uh, it was one of those weeks after church, I'm at the gas station filling up, and I hear somebody driving by on Main Street going, Resurrection! And I'm like, what in the world is going on? I look over there, and it's Lee Blanchard driving down the street. So he understood how much I like resurrection. I mean, it, it transformed my life. Like, resurrection made me a different person, understanding the depths of resurrection. Resurrection is an awesome worry killer. It just does that. And so I hope that, that you will get some of that today. Um, the power that resurrection has to transform us is one of the reasons why it was Paul, the Apostle Paul's greatest hope. And that's the title of our sermon today, Paul's Greatest Hope. Just take Philippians 3. You don't have to go there, but... Paul lists in Philippians 3 all these blessings of the gospel, of knowing Christ. He talks about that he, he's knowing Christ, he's gaining Christ, he's being found in Christ, he's having a righteousness in Christ. But he says at the end of chapter 3, he says in, in 10-11, he says, but all of those things are so that, and he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Any means, Paul said, to attain the resurrection from the dead. He was willing to sacrifice his life, his comfort, everything he had to attain the resurrection of the dead, his greatest hope. Let's read now 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. If you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 15 is Paul's longest chapter 
of all of his letters. 58 verses that deal entirely with resurrection of the dead. Right? That's how important it was to him. Let's start at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pray. Father God, I would ask that you would just prepare our hearts this morning to receive your word, that you would comfort and challenge us with it, that you would transform us by it. And God, as we receive your word today, may our hearts respond with reverence and awe and submission. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, in February 1856, about 150 years ago, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon, it was a good one, entitled, The Resurrection of the Dead. Now he started that sermon out with this observation, which is a little shocking. He said, there are very few Christians who believe the resurrection of the dead. And he goes on to say, For by the resurrection of the dead is meant something very different from the immortality of the soul. You see what he was suggesting there? That belief in the afterlife, the spiritual afterlife, no problem for the believer. But when you take it a little further and talk about belief in a resurrected body, Charles Spurgeon's pointing out that a lot of his congregation doesn't even believe that. Well, fast forward to April 2006, right? modern America. The Scripps Survey Research Center polled the following question. And think about this in your head. Answer this to yourself. Do you believe that after you die, your physical body will be resurrected someday? 54% said they do not believe that. They believed in Jesus' resurrection, but not their own resurrection. Now, this problem is nothing new. We just, we've, we've seen it in London 150 years ago. We see it today in modern America. And the problem existed for Paul in first century Corinth. So let's look at verse 12 and see Paul's description of Corinth's problem. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Just like 1856 London, just like modern America, first century Corinth had a problem. And that was they had members of their church that did not believe that they themselves would be resurrected from the dead. Paul's thinking is this, and we're going to get into this as we go through this chapter, these verses. How could someone believe that Jesus rose from the dead and not believe 
that they're going to rise from the dead. To him, that made no sense at all. For him, you could not separate the two, right? You remember that goofy commercial years ago where this guy's got a hard hat and he's super glued to this I-beam? Anybody remember that goofy thing? That's how they are. Super glued together. Now, for the life of me, I can't remember how the guy kept his head in the hard hat. Never figured that one out. But that's what Paul's saying. They are inseparable. But before we dig into uh, Paul's truth about the resurrection of the dead, we need to know what he's talking about when he says it. I want to deal with two things that Paul means by resurrection of the dead. Believe me, there are many more. Like I said, I spent eight weeks on this. But we're going to deal with two today. The first one is the no-brainer one. When Paul talks about resurrection of the dead in any of his letters, he's referring to the literal, physical raising of the body of the believer. Okay? Let's just take a look at Romans 6.5. He gives us an example. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Well, was Christ's resurrection bodily? Yeah. Right? Our resurrection will be bodily. Look at Romans 8.11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. If you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit within you, what you do, that's the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. That's the Spirit that will turn your mortal body into an immortal body at your resurrection. So that's the first thing Paul means when he's talking about resurrection from the dead. A literal, physical raising of the body. Then there's a second thing, and it's still, it gets more exciting as we go along. This is awesome stuff. When Paul talks of the resurrection of the dead, he is also referring to the coming of new creation. The new heavens and the new earth. All right? That coming of new creation will coincide with our resurrection. That's what Paul talks about when he's speaking of the resurrection of the dead. John puts it like this in Revelation 21. He talks about this new heavens and new earth, this new creation. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. John is expressing resurrection and new creation hope there. Right? What sense does it talk about? Does it make to talk about uh, crying, dying, mourning, having pain if there's no body? Spiritual body has none of that. All right? And let's look at Paul. He, he gets on the same subject. In verse, we just read in Revelation 21 in verse 4 that John said, Death shall be no more. Paul mentions the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55. He says this, When the imperishable 
excuse me, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, that's resurrection language, folks. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So John talks about death shall be no more. Paul talks about the death of death himself. And when does it come? He tells us, right? It comes with new creation and resurrection. Amen to that. That is something to look forward to, man. That's awesome. So those are the two things. The resurrection of the dead, when Paul talks about it, refers to a raised body coinciding with new creation. One scholar puts it like this. He says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ inaugurates the age to come, that's the new creation, and provides basis for future hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now I've got to take a little break here and talk about why, this, why Paul focuses so much on this physical, this resurrection. And that has to do with the Bible's view of material things, physical things, the body. All right, it's very important. The Bible, and this also is going to answer the question of why so many reject resurrection. The Bible does not view material creation as something to be opposed or discarded. The physical is not evil. Right? It's not something we're to escape from. Okay? That is a pagan view of creation. From Plato all the way to Buddhism today, there's this idea that you need to escape the physical, escape the flesh, it's evil, it's sinister, it's bad, and get to the spiritual. The spiritual is good. That's where you want to be. Spiritual. That is false from a biblical point of view. It's just plain false. The Bible is clear that the body will be transformed, not abandoned. N.T. Wright says this, The point of resurrection, so far as Paul is concerned, is the reaffirmation of creation. Reaffirmation of creation. By the way, that could be a pretty good Christian rap song, if any of you guys are into that. The reaffirmation of creation, not its denial. Okay? And just take Genesis 1. All right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the earth? Physical. He spends the whole chapter and he repeats himself. It is good. It is good. Creation is good. Creation is good. Creation is good. Oh, creation is very good. Right? Then we get to chapter 2. Okay? We're cruising along and everything comes to a screeching halt. All of a sudden we see this creation is not good. What's the problem? Adam was alone. Right? What was God's solution to Adam's problem? Think about this. How could Adam be alone? He's in the Garden of Eden in God's presence and all that awesomeness. And yet something's not right. God's solution for Adam is Eve. Now, I have a wife, and I can tell you that a wife is something physical, something you can touch. Amen to that. And that was the solution to Adam's problem. All of that is an affirmation of God's good creation. There's nothing evil about it. The problem was that the sin that we brought to it and cursed it and corrupted it. Uh, Think about the incarnation, for crying out loud. God became flesh. 
Now listen, if you were a pagan, right, and this is where Gnosticism came out of, by the way, they could not fathom that God would become flesh. To them, that means God became evil. That's just not what the Bible teaches. God became flesh. There's nothing wrong with flesh. It's the sin that corrupts the flesh. This is an awesome set of verses, too. Let's look at Paul in Romans 8, 20 through 23. He describes for us that even creation, God's good creation, is groaning out to be put right. Look what he says. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's resurrection language, folks. 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's the resurrection we've been talking about. Those two things, bodily resurrection, new creation. We are awaiting that eagerly. All of creation is awaiting that eagerly. So this God who created a very good creation has always, always intended to put it right. Okay? And the resurrection of the dead, a new creation, is part of how he's going to do that. So, what's Paul's response to this problem that so many of us have of rejecting, or not even maybe directly, but just implicitly in, in the way we think, of rejecting the resurrection of the dead. How does he address that? Let's look at verses 13 through 19. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Remember now, we've just talked about what resurrection of the dead is. Those two things and more. Look what he just says. If there's none of that, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In his response to Corinth and his response to us that struggle with that, Paul put the entire gospel of Jesus Christ on the line. The whole thing. In other words, it's everything I've written about Christ is true or it's not. Hinged on the resurrection. He made it clear that if there's no resurrection of the dead, the thing we just spoke about, those two things, if that's not going to happen, then Jesus never rose from the dead. Right? The two are irreversibly connected. You cannot lodge them apart. Now, to understand this, like to, to kind of comprehend the gravity of what he's saying, think of it like this. Personalize it. Okay? Think this. If I do not rise from the dead at some point in the future, what does that mean? Christ never rose from the dead. 
in the past. Just think about that for a second. That's what Paul's saying here. He was so adamant about making this connection, he repeated it three times. We have them up here for you. In verse 13, he said, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You see that? Those two things. Okay? Verse 15, Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And verse 16, he repeats it the third time. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Three times he makes that connection. I got a picture up here of a weightlifter to illustrate this for you. Because it's very important. Just think about this. This is, a, this is, a, this is not a picture of me, for sure. And this guy... Uh, I don't know how much weight he's got lifted up there, but it's quite a bit. So think this. The left is Jesus' resurrection. The right is the resurrection of the dead, the way we just talked about it. Now, what would happen if just like that, one side of the weight were gone? The whole thing comes violently crashing down. It doesn't matter which side you get rid of. Either way, bam, everything comes tumbling down. Everything falls apart. And I'm sure this guy is very seriously injured to boot. Likewise, in the text we just read, Paul describes how violently the gospel comes crashing down if there is no resurrection from the dead and no resurrection of Jesus. He gives us seven things. I'm going to go through them quick. That fall apart without resurrection. First one, verse 14. He says, preaching is in vain. What's vain? Vanity. The speaking of the gospel becomes a fruitless and empty endeavor. It's useless. Right? Imagine a useless gospel. That's no gospel. Verse 14. Faith is in vain. Well, that means our faith in Christ becomes a useless and empty endeavor. It serves no purpose. Third thing, in verse 15. He says that if you preach that, you're misrepresenting God, right? God's purpose for us, His future intentions, His character are all maligned if we're speaking the gospel and it's not true. We're talking resurrection and it's not true. The gospel is a farce. Fourth thing, he says, is this. In 17, he says, your faith is futile. So whatever faith you have in Christ does not do anything for you because Christ didn't rise from the dead because you're not going to rise from the dead. Fifth thing in verse 17, you are still in your sins. You will remain guilty of your transgressions. There will be no imputation of Christ's righteousness to you if there is no resurrection of the dead, as we talked about. Remember those two things. Okay. Sixth thing, verse 18, this one hits hard. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Even heaven comes crashing down if there's no resurrection of the dead. There is no heaven if Christ hasn't raised and if we're not raised. That is brutal. Right? This means, think about this. Right? This is where so many of us get messed up. This means that resurrection of the dead is not the same as heaven. 
And so often we just collapse the two together and smoosh them together. Right? They are not the same. Heaven is spiritual. We've just seen resurrection is physical, material, new body, transformed body. Heaven comes immediately after death. Right? We call it life after death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right? That's heaven. But we've just seen that resurrection comes with new creation. It's different. People call resurrection, if we call heaven life after death, some folks call resurrection life after life after death. They're totally separate things. Our time spent in heaven will be finite. How often do we say he's going to be, spend eternity in heaven? We would just collapse the things together. Our eternity will be in resurrected bodies on a new earth, a new creation with Christ at the center of it all. That is awesome stuff. So that's the, that's the sixth thing, right? Heaven itself is not there if there's no resurrection. Seventh thing is that if there's no resurrection, then Paul says we are the most to be pitied. Why would he say that? I mean, because we are living for something that doesn't exist. It's not true. In fact, we have it up here, I think, in, uh, if not, it's chapter 15, verse 32. 1 Corinthians 15, 32. Look down. It's, Paul says this. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now that's some awesome theology. I mean, at least he's honest. If everything he preaches is true, the gospel's true. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, he's like, listen, he's over here. It's all useless. Forget about it. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Okay? So everything we hold dear about the gospel collapses if the dead are not raised. Right? That resurrection of the dead we spoke about. N.T. Wright kind of sums up Paul's view like this. He says, for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is the heart of the gospel. It is the object of faith, the ground of justification, the basis for obedient Christian living, the motivation for unity, and not least, the challenge to the principalities and powers. That's evil, Satan, death, all of that bad stuff. Okay, but man, we got some good news. Look at verse 20, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But, and I love it when Paul says but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has risen and therefore, the resurrection of the dead is true too. You also will rise from the dead at new creation in the new heavens and earth. Because of that, because of that truth, that entire collapse of the gospel that Paul was just talking about is reversed. The whole thing is reversed because of the truth of resurrection. So what does that mean? That means that when we speak the gospel, it's not in vain. It's done in resurrection power. Romans 1.16, it's not up here, but I'll read it. Hence at that, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God for salvation. That's resurrection power. 
I want to read you an email about this real quickly that I think will demonstrate the power that the gospel has that Paul, that Paul roots in resurrection. About 2010, I spoke the gospel to a, a vendor, a salesman that comes by on occasion. And we was just out in the parking lot, and I'm sharing the gospel with him, speaking the gospel to him. And it didn't look like anything was happening whatsoever, which is usually the case, right? The, the reason we speak the gospel is to be obedient to Christ, not to save everybody. That's God's job, okay? We're just to be obedient. So I'm speaking the gospel, and uh, he leaves. Two years later, two years, I get this email from the same man. He says, hi, Corby. I hope all is well with you and your family. It has been a while since we last spoke, and I just wanted to drop you a little personal note. Actually, this is a thank you note. When I came out to visit you a couple of years ago, you said something to me that has stuck with me since that day. You asked me, do you believe in Jesus Christ? My response to you was yes. But unfortunately, at the time, I did not truly know what believe really meant. Since then, I have done some life searching, and as of today, I can honestly say, yes, I do believe in Jesus Christ and have accepted him into my life. I just wanted to let you know, and here's the power of the gospel grounded in resurrection. Here's where it comes out. I just wanted to let you know that your words have stuck with me since that day. Whose words were they? They weren't my words. They were the words of the gospel grounded in resurrection power. Stuck with him since that day. He says, I just want to thank you for calling me out. I would not be where I am today without people like you. Thanks for telling me what I needed to hear. So that's why the gospel has such power to change people, Paul says, because it's grounded in the gospel. That's one of the reversals, right? Because resurrection is true. The other one is that our faith is not in vain or futile anymore. Resurrection means we can all be saved. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, remember when Paul talks about Christ's resurrection, he's always assuming our resurrection, right? You will be saved. It means we're no longer in our sins with resurrection. Christ's work on the cross canceled our sin, canceled it completely, and we are justified by it. Romans 4.25 says this, Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And here's the other reverse. Heaven is real. When our loved ones die, they are present with Christ in heaven. And the truth is, of that is grounded in resurrection. Amen to that. I love what John Piper says about this reversal, the truth of resurrection and what it means for the gospel. He says this. He says, not in vain. That's the longing of our lives. O Lord, let it not be misspent. Let me not come to my grave and say, I've wasted it. It does not have to be. Christ is risen and everything done in his name by his strength and for his glory is not in vain. It is enviable, significant, valuable, eternal. Amen. So, what are we to do with Paul's truth about resurrection? How should we respond to what he's teaching us here? 
Two things. First one, make it your greatest hope for the future. Here's what I mean. In Philippians, Paul talks about that we are awaiting a Savior from heaven to bring resurrection. And then look at 1 Peter, he makes the same point. We have this up here. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 says the same thing. And this is beautiful stuff right here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's one side of the dumbbell. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's the other side. You see that? Kept in heaven for you, just like Paul said, awaiting from heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Both Paul and Peter speak of the hope they have of the new age, the new creation, and resurrection. Stored up in heaven. I want you to rethink heaven a little bit. Heaven is the place where resurrection and the new creation is stored up. It's even better than we think about it, right? Hoping for heaven, by the way, is not far enough. It's not radical enough. The Bible teaches something well beyond that. And it's resurrection. That's good news because God is still up to something. He's not finished just because somebody's in heaven. Heaven is pregnant with resurrection of the dead, yours and mine, and new creation. That is good news, folks. Put our future hope in that. Paul did, Peter did. Second thing you can do is make it your greatest hope for now. I had two dear friends die this year, both from cancer. Barbara's husband, Harold, this spring. My golf buddy. 17 years we would get together virtually every Saturday. Snow, rain, whatever. Cold and golf. And I'm not kidding you. We were totally loyal to that cause. right? Well, he died this past spring of cancer. Well, because of resurrection and because of Harold's coming resurrection down the road, he is in heaven with Christ right now. Amen. But I had another friend, Kim, who was dying of cancer. Heaven had gone to, uh, Harold had gone to heaven, but Kim was still on earth fighting cancer. Right? So here's what we have. We have a Christian in Jesus' presence. Yet, we had a Christian being ravaged by cancer at the same time. Okay? All of us can relate to this. We had a believer in heaven, a loved one in heaven, yet a believer being assaulted by a fallen world. It happens all the time. It's going on. We had a believer free from the threat of evil in heaven, yet... My friend Kim was a believer being victimized by the evil that sin had wrought on creation. You see how disconnected that is? Heaven didn't solve Kim's problem. Right? What is the only thing that can take care of that paradox? 
that separation. It's resurrection. That's it. Only resurrection from the dead will finally and fully defeat death, sin, and evil. Only resurrection will, will reunite all believers for all time in new bodies on a new earth. Man, that is awesome. I'm going to close with this. Christian author Nancy Guthrie, I think it's going to help us understand how important resurrection is to make it our hope now and for the future. She had a uh, daughter named Hope who died a couple years ago at six months old. This is what she said. We buried our daughter, Hope, in June. Nothing in my life has ever felt so wrong as putting her body in the grave and simply walking away. I thought about the cold earth surrounding Hope's body and I wept, feeling a sense of helplessness in surrendering her body to the coming winter. It's a mom's job to keep her child warm, isn't it? People want to tell us that that's not her, that's just her body in the grave. She's in heaven. But they don't understand. I loved and cared for that body. I knew her and loved her in context of her body. Who can't relate to that? I mean, the people you know are the people in body. And she went on to say this, I am so grateful to know that her body matters to God too. The sin of Adam will not get the last word in hope's life and death, nor mine. Instead, Jesus will come and call us to life. Everyone joined to Him by faith can anticipate the day to come when once again God will breathe His very own life into the bodies that have become dust. We will experience all God promised when Isaiah prophesied, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwelt in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Amen to that. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that that the unbeliever may come to know Christ and be part of the resurrection story of God that they, if, the, if there are any unbelievers here today, Lord, those that don't trust Christ, that they might recognize the death and the futility of their sin and by trusting Christ, be united to the life and power of resurrection. I pray, Lord, that the believer may come to embrace the great hope and power of their own resurrection from the dead. May we all die with Christ that we may daily rise to new life, Lord. Let us reckon our old life dead. Grant us, Father, more and more of the resurrection life. May it rule us. May we walk in its power and be strengthened through its influence that like Paul, by any means, we may attain the resurrection of the dead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together. Thank you.